All right, so like I said here, we are now coming near the end of this cycle, this cycle with Babylon that, that really serves to, to, to denote this fall, this collapse, this utter and complete decimation and judgment of the great harlot, the great prostitute, this worldly system and its perversion against Christ, its desire to lure away of the world from its king, to lure away the bride from her bridegroom. And this whole scene, beginning all the way back at the beginning of chapter 17, has been a picture of basically constantly warning of the coming fall. Those woes, those lamentations. And now we get the seventh declaration regarding her fall in verses 21 and 24. Now, the reason why that's important, because seven, right, the number of completion. And so with the seventh declaration of Babylon's fall, we get her complete decimation pictured here. So we get the first woman, Babylon, we see her decimation. And then chapter 19 gives us another interlude, something that we've seen throughout Revelation is these little interludes that come at the end of the consummation of the age when everything looks terrible and horrible in the sixth seal and the seventh seal, in the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, in the sixth bowl and the seventh bowl. God has provided these little interludes, these little interjections in these scenes of judgment that take our eyes away from the judgment and put them on the bride, put them on the people of God. And to show them as sealed, as measured, as the faithful witnesses, as protected, and here as feasting with the Lord, as celebrating. In the picture as over and over again to to the reader, to the listener, to the saint who hears the words of Revelation is to know, yes, Judgment will be terrible and horrible. It, it is something that you ought to, to, it ought to stir you to call, to witness people, to turn to Christ. But in the midst of all of the judgment, in the midst of all of the calamity, in the midst of all of the pain and sorrow that the second coming will bring for those who are opposed to Christ, it will only bring joy for those who are in Him. You have nothing to be afraid of. Now, or then, if you're in Christ, you've got nothing to be afraid of. That's what these little interludes, these little interjections that he's been telling through this story, recapitulating the cycle over and over again of sorrows and persecution in the age. An age that kind of grows in its persecution while the church continues to be faithful and steadfast and perseverant. And yet as the age comes and it looks as if for a short season, God sends a strong delusion to unite the nations in their persecution against the body. What looks like a, vic- what looks like a loss for the church and the victory for the world will actually be what is just simply preparing the stage for the final and utter victory as Christ bolts out of glory, gathering his saints into the clouds with him for celebration, for glorification, as he brings judgment and final vindication against the nations. And this is the cycle that's been repeated over and over and over and over again. And all of it is to serve to build an expectancy, an urgency in the heart of the reader, of the listener, to say, well, what will happen for the saints after? 
What happens after he comes? What will it be for us? To which that's exactly how the book will close with what will be for the saints of glory. But now we get a little picture. For the first time, really, we get a picture as to what will be as our text today will close with the marriage supper of the Lamb. So let's read the the fall of Babylon and the celebration of the bride. Here, verse, verse 21 of chapter 18 through verse 10 of chapter 19. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on earth. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen and bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What a scene. So let's look at these scenes in progression. First, looking at Babylon's complete decimation. We don't get celebration without Babylon's fall, Babylon's decimation, right? The saints have to be free of her. They have to be free from the bondage. So, because you can't rejoice, right? If there's no vindication for for wrongdoing. If, 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 If sin still lurks, if those things which could lure you away still exist. 
Because if that's still there, if that possibility of falling is still there, how can we know it won't happen again? That's, that's the, that'll be the difference between the first state and the last state. The first state, there was the possibility to sin. In the last state, there will be no possibility to sin. All of those who are in the Lord will be glorified in such a way as that all sin, all pride, all haughtiness, all arrogance, even our wills will be so conformed to the image of Christ. As the Bible says, when we see Him, we will be like Him. There will be no possibility to sin. It won't be there. No angel will fall away. There won't be a new... Like, the new humanity's been established. All the universe will be filled with the glory of God because His people are glorified now in Him. But in order for that to happen, all of that which was once against them, which needs to be vindicated, all rights or all wrongs need to be righted, justice needs to be established, Wickedness needs to be removed. And that's what we see in this complete decimation of Babylon, which he will stop for a moment, give us that parenthesis with the celebration, and then pick back up in chapter 19, verse 11, with the destruction of the beast and the false prophet, those minions of Satan, before picking up with Satan in chapter 20. So look at this complete picture of decimation. I mean, this is complete decimation. That's in mind here. This is not partial. Remember, throughout Revelation, those capitulating or repeating cycles have been intensifying and escalating each time, getting us more and more comprehensive. So like, for instance, the seals were less comprehensive than the bowls were, right? Because each cycle is intensifying, escalating. Same story, but intensifying. Now we're seeing complete decimation. Nothing is left. We're here. This is now getting us as zoomed in as possible as to the nature of Babylon in the second coming of Christ. And it is completely destroyed. Look at what it says here. A mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. So a millstone, right? A millstone is what they would, back in these days tie an oxen to that would go around this massive rolling stone would be used to crush grain with. Right? It'd go around in circles all day. But this is a massive stone. This is very extremely heavy. Now the picture here is that literally God is taking, has this angel taking a stone and throwing it into the sea. A picture of drowning, of causing Babylon to literally drown in the sea. The chaos, right? It's so funny. The, 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 the very sea which produced this wicked city is the sea which it will drown in. And that's the picture. It, it, it being drowned in its own chaos. What's so fascinating though is once again... Here we see this prophetic language being unveiled with Christ. Where does this picture of a millstone being used to throw something down and cause it to to drown in the water come from? Well, it actually first comes from Jeremiah. Now, in the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament prophets often had to do what we call lived out parables. They, they, They would do something that actually served a purpose for teaching. 
So this morning, right, Hosea and Gomer is a perfect example of a lived out parable. Ezekiel has some weird lived out parables that he has to do, cooking stuff on dung and things like that. <coughs> but listen to this specific thing. So Jeremiah has a servant that's with him. And after, the end, after he receives the prophecy of the destruction of Babylon, this is what he is told to have his servant do. Jeremiah 51, verse 63 through 64. When you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it and cast it in the midst of the Euphrates. We've heard that before. And say, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster that I am bringing upon her and they shall become exhausted. Thus are the words of Jeremiah. So the picture here is right, is this, this, this symbolic picture of taking the scroll, taking the book of his prophecy regarding the fall of Babylon. Now you're going to go take a stone and throw it in the water so that it sinks to the bottom to be completely destroyed. Well, why? Because that's what's going to happen to Babylon. She is going to be utterly and completely destroyed by the very chaos that produced her. She will be utterly and completely destroyed. And this is why so often in the Bible, right, the sea plays a huge portion in it. What is used to destroy Pharaoh and the armies? Sea, right? The sea is brought on. God does what for His people? He allows them to pass through the sea safely. Literally on dry ground. There's no water for them. There's nothing left for them in that sense. Because there's no chaos for you in Christ. He didn't remove the sea. He made a way through it. And the very chaos that produces, that was once a hindrance to God's people, He passes them through it. But for the world that's not in Christ, that has no passageway, itself will be crushed by the sea. That's why what's so fascinating about the story of Jonah is the, is the fish, the great fish, is actually not a judgment against Jonah. It's a rescue. It's a rescue. That's why, what do you see in Jonah 10? You see a praise. That's why in, in that book I wrote on it, it's titled An Unlikely Sanctuary. Because what it becomes. It's a rescue, which literally spits him out right where he needs to be. But for the rest, the sea is a place of drowning. It's of chaos. Because it's a picture of that final judgment. That you will literally drown in what created you you will drown in the sin that's caused you to be what you will be. That will be your destruction. But this picture of a millstone cast into the sea, I think we've actually heard Jesus talk about this before. In reference to those who would cause his disciples, his little ones, to stumble. Matthew chapter 18, verse 3 through 9. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. 
Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hellfire. You see what Jesus is saying there. Why he says those who would cause one of his little ones a picture of his disciples there. All of us are referred to as little ones, by the way. We are the children of God. We have been adopted into his family. The Lord... Jesus, we are his posterity. That's why in Isaiah 9 it says he will be everlasting father. That's, that's, not, com, com, that's not conflating him with God the father. It's saying as the greater Adam, he has created a new posterity of people. We are his people. We are of his lineage. <coughs> But for those who would cause them to sin, who would seek to lure them away, it's better that a millstone be tied to their neck and that they be cast into the depths of the sea. Why? Because it's a picture of what's going to happen to them. It's a picture. Jesus is not just giving a parable of like, man, those guys, you should just go and and kill all the pedophiles. It's like, that's not what he has in mind here. I've heard that preached that way, by the way. Literally, that's not what he means. He's giving prophetic judgment for a world that seeks to lure his people away, that seeks to harm his sheep. And the reality of it is, it would literally, like if you were to take this picture literally of what we get in Revelation, of like a big angel's going to just throw this massive hurling stone down, you miss the point. Jesus says that would actually be better than what will happen to you. It would be better that literally just a big rock fell on you. It would be better that just big comet comes here and makes us a set of dinosaurs, right? That's it. That would be better than what will happen in the judgment. That's why he says, if your eye calls you stumble, cut it out, right? Once again, not literal. The picture is whatever it is that's causing you to go after Babylon, get rid of it. You're the bride. You have one lover, and if anything tries to pull you away from that lover, it's got to go. It's got to go. Because if you don't, you'll be the one under the rock. You won't be on the rock, you'll be under it. And that's the picture here. This is what's happened. So this picture of rock here that, that Jesus is giving is that prophetic judgment that is to come. A picture of the complete and utter destruction. We'll see a little bit more about a millstone in a little bit. So it says, Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. This is the picture of, once again, the utter calamity and destruction that will be brought upon her, both by the nation seeking to try to kill the system that it hates now, but also from the Lord Himself. And we will see the kind of carnage that is left from His utter and complete judgment when we look at chapter uh, verses 11-21 through 21 of chapter 19 with the rider of the white horse, Christ coming. Out. So it will be thrown down with violence and it will be found no more. Babylon is done. She is 
gone, no more to be found. It says that all, we see that all her pleasures and profits will be completely removed. Verse 22, the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard and you no more. A craftsman of any craft will be found and you no more. The sound of the meal will be heard and you no more. This is a picture of all her pleasures and all her profits. P-R-O-F-I-T-S. Being completely removed. All the things that she wants to look to. All of the worldly pastimes that she felt the need to give all her money to. All her heart to. All her affections to. You got people this morning who saw it better to sit in 25 degree below weather in a football stadium than to be in a comfortable chair worshiping Jesus. All those noises of those crowds. I got a chance to watch the World Cup this morning, a little bit before church. Great game, great match. And I listened to the, 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 the cheers of thousands of people. As I was thinking upon this text, that won't be there. It'll be all gone. All those leisurely pastimes that we sought to numb our senses to, to try to veil the reality of our own mortality, will be gone. All those lusts of the flesh that we so fought for, that we abandoned our families for, they'll be gone. All that profit. We just got to make the next dollar. We got to get the next raise, the next promotion, and we'll do whatever it takes to get it. All of that, the sound of the meal, it's gone. It's over. There'll be no more work. No more promotion. All those things you sold your soul for, they'll be gone. There'll be no more. And that's why I love the picture of the sound of the meal being gone. And the picture of the millstone being the agent of judgment. Because once again, it's what you sought after that actually ends up destroying you. The sin you sought after is the very thing that will crush you in the end. The things that you so desperately want will be the only will be what crushed you. And that's why any any affection that does not first and foremost flow out of a desire and an affection for Christ is a deadly one. Your affection for your spouse should flow from your affection for Christ. Your affection for your children should flow from your affection for your Christ. Your affection for your job should flow from your affection for Christ. And if it doesn't, it's a disordered affection. And that affection will crush you. Because it's sitting in the wrong place. This is coming from Ezekiel 26, 13 and 14. A picture of this. It says, I will stop the music of your songs. The sound of your lyres shall be no more. I will make you a bare rock. You shall be a place for the spreading of nets. That's not mission work there either. That's literally talking about you'll be a piece of wood 
that's literally what they hang nets over, right? To just dry. You're just nothing. Just a bare piece of dry wood. You shall never be rebuilt. For I am the Lord. I have spoken, declares the Lord God. You shall never be rebuilt. That's your guarantee there'll never be another fall. There'll never be another Babylon. There'll never be another dragon. There'll never be another beast. There'll never be another false prophet when Christ returns. The only thing that will be established is righteousness forever and ever. Here's something fascinating. Verse 23, we see that the light of Christ will be completely removed. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. Now there are some commentators who look at this and just simply say, this is just a picture that there will be no joy. There will be no celebration. There will be no joy. Amen. That is true. There will be no celebrations. There will be no joy for those who are on earth, who are under the judgment of Christ. But I think there's a reason why there is no joy. There is no celebration. I want you guys to know that the only reason that joy exists for anyone in this world outside of Christ is because of common grace. That's it. It's because God calls it the rain on the just and the unjust. That's because there is a glimmer of the light of Christ in the world through His people. The voice of the bridegroom is here through the people, through His church. What you see here in Revelation 19 is the picture of what Paul gave in 1 Thessalonians 4. I'll turn there because it's on my mind, but I want to read this thing. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 through First uh, Thessalonians 5.5. 5. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who fall asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of our Lord, will not precede those who fall asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. You see, I hate using this word because of the false teaching that it has surrounded it. 
But this is a picture of the biblical rapture. Right? This isn't some secret, esoteric, left behind, people see your clothes on the floor, don't know what happened. Right? That's not what happens at all. That didn't begin being taught to the church until the late 19th century by a group of mystics, and it just blew up with the Schofield and Reference Bible that took off in 19th and 20th century America. But that at all has nothing to do with this. The church will be brought up, raptured into heaven when the Lord returns. Visibly, physically, everyone will see it. No one will go, oh, where did all these people just go? They will know precisely where everyone just went. They will know who belonged to the Lamb. There'll be no doubt of it. That's literally why back in verse 20 of chapter 18, it says, celebrate, O saints. The world knows who belongs to Him. It knows that because He's come, it's the time of celebration. Because guess what? You are right. That will be one of the primary means of vindication for God's people. Not some secret rapture where people are like, oh, I wonder why they left. They know precisely why you've been carried away. It's because of your testimony of Christ. That will be your vindication. All the laughing, all the scoffing, all the mocking. Your vindication will be you have gone to the Lord. It will be beheld. And the moment that He comes to grab His people to return and in glory to sweep His bride and to carry her home to glory forever will be the same time that He brings judgment on the dragon who oppresses her in the tower. It will be the same moment. And it will be physical and visible. And the glories of Christ that are revealed and reflected in the world through His church. The voice of His bridegroom saying, Come to Me all you who are weary and burdened and you will find rest. That voice will be gone. And the light of the church living faithfully a reflection of Christ to the world will be gone. He'll be gone. There were pictures of this when there was judgment on Jerusalem for their wickedness in the Old Testament. You remember how long it was between Malachi and Matthew? 400 years. That was a judgment. That was the voice of the bridegroom being pulled away. That was a a foreshadow of what will be at the end. Jeremiah 7.34, I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride for the land shall become a waste. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. There's a reason why I believe with all my heart this is so much more than just a picture of there's not going to be joy there. There won't be. But what is the language that the New Testament ascribes to people of God? You're the lamp. You're the bridegroom. Or you're the bride. Christ is the bridegroom. And you are called. There's a reason why Jesus says shine your light. There's a reason why one of the great 
warnings to the churches in Revelation is, I'll come and take your lamp away. Because you're not being a light. My voice isn't going from you. So I'll put a muzzle on you. That's what we're called to be. A light and a voice. Whose light and voice? Christ. We are His light. We are His voice. And in that moment when He returns, we will be taken away. And I sure hope that He finds me using both of those. Using His light and His voice towards others. You remember when it said in Thessalonians here where it says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. You know, that's really important because in the Bible, you know, Matthew, or Jesus talks about how as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be when I return. You know, so often people look at that and think that's a reference to how bad things are. That's actually not what that's talking about. It's talking about the way that people scoffed and mocked at Noah and said, what are you talking about rain? What do you mean judgment? Why are you building a boat? We've got this mist that comes from the ground. That's not covering anybody. What are you talking about, Noah? Don't be any judgment. It's not that text when he says, as it was in the days of Noah, it's not just about, man, it's going to be perverse and there's going to be a bunch of sodomites everywhere and everything will be bad. That's not primarily what that text is saying. He's saying that Babylon, the world, will just be thinking there's peace, there's security, there's no reason to hear what you've got to say about a judgment. There's no reason to get in this ark called Christ. Things are good. That's what he means by that. That's when, what Paul means when he says they will say it's peace and security. They'll think we've got everything under control. We don't need to hear you. You just sound weird. You're, you're, uh, you're a pessimist. You, you're, you, you're a conspiracy theorist. You just think this Jesus guy is going to come out of somewhere? We've got everything we need. That's what it means by as it was in the days of Noah. A world that is neither waiting nor watching. A world that thinks it is God. You don't wait for what you believe you are. And that will be the great fall of Babylon. The bridegroom will be taken away. And because of that, because the light of the lamp, because the voice of the bridegroom and the bride is removed, so too is any chance to repent. There's, that's over now. It's done. Over and over again, like we saw with the trumpet judgments, right? The fifth and sixth trumpet. Things got bad. Things didn't look good. But what did it say at the end of those judgments? They would not repent. They did not repent. And like Esau, now they will search for it with tears. And there will be none. There will be no chance to repent. Because it's over now. It's gone. It's over There will be no chance because there will be no gospel proclamation anymore. There will be no one saying, come to the Lord, repent and believe. No. They will bow and they will confess. But they will not be able to repent. 
the chance is gone. They will no longer have the light of Christ. They will only have the judgment of Christ. That's it. And the reason why all of this is just is now laid out in verse 23 and 24. Babylon's guilt's fully established. First, it says here, for your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all who've been slain on earth. So there are really five major reasons. Well, you could probably say three. Three major reasons why she is justly condemned under the wrath of God. First is her idolatry of leaders in the world, of people in the world, of prophets. She, she is an idol maker. Your merchants were the great ones. The ones you elevated, the ones you founded prosperity and peace and security in. And they're nowhere to be found anymore. They've been destroyed before your eyes. So one, for your idolatry. Two, you deceived, right? You deceived the nations by your sorcery. Your sorcery. Right now, this word sorcery here can mean a lot of things. It, it but ultimately, it means almost an intoxicating force, right? The picture that you are luring people away with your promises of healing. You're luring them away with your promises of a better life. Your promises of satisfaction. All of which are empty. But you lured them away. You lured them away with the promise of this is the fix you need. You deceived with your sorcery. And then lastly, there's blood on your hands. And there are three groups that he's classified as, as this nation, this Babylonian system has brought murder upon. First, of the prophets. This is a picture of how they killed the light. They sought to kill the very voice of the one who now comes to bring judgment on them. This is what Jesus' parable of the wicked tenants is all about, right? Where first, you know, there's the master, goes over the, the, the vineyard. First, he sends his workers to go and straighten it out. That's a picture of the prophets. And all the people there, they killed the workers. And so he goes, what in the world? So then, he sent his son. And they said, let's kill the son and take what's his. So then the master comes himself. And wrath and judgment. That's the picture of Christ's second coming. But this is the picture. You taught to kill the voice, which are the prophets, of the one who now brings his wrath upon you. Secondly, you killed his people, the saints. You persecuted his body. You sought to crush his body. You sought to silence his mouth. You sought to crush his body in order to ensure that his kingdom couldn't advance. That all makes sense, right? God is vindicating his people. He's bringing justice upon the martyrs, justice upon his prophets. But notice this third group. And all who've been slain on earth. 
God's righteous judgment against the world will not just be for the fact that they have murdered prophets and they've murdered the saints, but it will be because they murdered their fellow image bearers. My friends, if you wonder why our nation's under the judgment that it is, it's because we've killed 70 million image bearers. If you kill an image bearer, you are seeking to kill God. You do realize that? All right, just making sure. You are, you are, that's why, right? After David has Uriah killed, what does he cry? Only you against you I have sinned, Lord. Because when you seek to kill a person, you are seeking to kill a reflection of God. That's what makes the murder, murder so evil, right? It's evil, but what makes it so evil, it's that I'm literally seeking to kill a reflection of God. That is what separates us from everything else. That's what separates you from the moose. You're an image bearer. You're a reflection of God. So when you kill another image bearer, you're seeking to kill God's reflection. That's why in that Noahic covenant, God said, I will repay for lifeblood. When you shed lifeblood, I'll repay it. And This is the picture here of him doing so. This is the judgment against Nineveh and Nahum. And the judgments of Babylon, Tyre, Nineveh, all of them are foreshadows of the greater Babylon because they're a part of it. Nahum chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, the galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, host of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and people with her charms. Sorcery. Deceiving the nations. Right? It says literally, they kill to indulge in the whorings of the prostitute. What's the promise to these young women when they get an abortion? You've got to have your career. You'll never be able to make it through college. You'll never be able to have, give this baby a, a good life or anything like that. They need to have everything. You want me to give them that PlayStation 3, that new Xbox. So it's better just to kill them. So that you can live your life how you want to. This is, this is what leads to bloodshed. This is what leads to wicked wars. To go and ravage nations for materials to make batteries. Fuel vehicles. To merely say we own another piece of land. what led to people in Rome to cheer and celebrate as men were killed alive for the whorings of Babylon. That's what it is. That's what people kill each other. 
That's why people die over five bucks. Getting mugged for five dollars. Just to go get another fix. The whorings of Babylon. So it leads to murder. So it leads to death. The longing for more of it. And that's why she's got to die. That's why her penalty is just. She is thrown down with violence because she threw down with violence. She is utterly destroyed because she utterly destroyed. God's justice is perfect against her. This is not cruel. This is not wrong. This is the scales of eternity perfectly balanced. Justice is paid against the whore who led so many to their death. And so we see this complete decimation. But before we see the complete destruction of the minions of the dragon who led to not only the the fall of Babylon, but ultimately leading to others to fall astray, to bring war and pain and suffering upon the saints, the beast and the false prophet. Before we see their destruction, which you'll see in verses 11 through 21 of chapter 19, we get this interlude now with the celebration of the saints. We see the bride. Now we see the other woman, the faithful woman, who now celebrates both the vindication, her vindication by the Lord and also her glorification in the consummation of her wedding. The wedding that she has so longed for to come. First, we see her joyful celebration in 1 through 5. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for His judgments are true and just. Stop right there. So here we have this voice of the great multitude. We've already been introduced to this great multitude back in chapter 7. The innumerable multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation which no man can number. This is the same group. It's a picture of the universal victorious church. This is the church of victory. It's no longer the militant church, the 144,000. This is the victorious church. This is the consummation that has come. And she is now crying out, Hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And we see from the bride a threefold hallelujah in verses 1 through 10. The 24 elders, which are the angelic host, of the, they, they will sing a hallelujah, but there are three, a threefold hallelujah that comes from the bride herself. Now, what do you think that means, right? It's a picture of the Trinity, right? Praise the Lord. All three persons are being praised for their work in the victory. All three persons of the Godhead are vitally a part of the victory of God. They all are. It's not just Jesus, not just the Father, not just the Spirit. All three are vitally a part of the victory of God in bringing about God's cosmic plan of redemption, restoration, and retribution. The first thing they praise Him for is for His true and perfect justice. Your judgments are true and just. And we've already seen that. We've seen that his judgment is true and just against Babylon. He is never cruel. He never goes too far. He provides the judgment which is exactly due those who have sinned against an eternal God. It's perfect justice. And you never, ever, 
ever need to be ashamed of the justice of God. That's what I love about this. The very first thing the saints praise is the justice of God. It is a righteous thing to celebrate when wickedness is, ju- is, is judged and perversion is exposed. It's a good thing. You know, so often we, when, we, when we praise and we do worship, right? We do so very individually. And I don't mean like I'm the only one singing. I mean, I often praise and worship God specifically just what he for, does for me. We ought to get a much bigger view of God's doings. Because that will give us a bigger view of how we should worship. God's justice, right? We, when he exposes corruption, when he is showing the folly of our national leaders, yes, it hurts. Yes, I hate that we are going downhill the way we are. Yes, as someone who has, who has fought for this country and loves it, it hurts to see it go into decline. But I tell you what, nothing in this world makes me happier than to see God's righteousness come against a wicked nation who kills babies, who promotes sodomy, who does all of these things. And if it means the complete decimation of this nation for the glorification of my Lord and His message, then so be it. Hallelujah. It is a righteous thing when God brings judgment on a wicked nation. It's even, and it hurts when it's yours, but it's good. It's good. And it's well-deserved. That's why I love Abraham's Lincoln's second inaugural speech. You should go read it sometime. I think it's got one of the highest views of the sovereignty of God I've ever read. And he said, both sides are praying for victory in this war. And who God should grant that to, who knows? Perhaps the only reason any of this exists is so that God can repay every drop of blood that it was first received by the lash. Well, slavery. If that's what this is for, then hallelujah. If God is repaying wickedness, so be it. This is something that we ought to celebrate that our God is just and true. And when you live in a world that's full of injustice, that proclaims wicked and false views of justice, this ought to give you reason to celebrate. Psalm 19, verse 7 through 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commands of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They're true and righteous altogether. There will be no injustice on the last day. Thank you, God. There will be no going too far. He will be perfect. True and just in all his ways. And we ought to celebrate that. We ought to celebrate it. Notice, not one time do you read, we're so happy that people are going to hell. They celebrate the fact that God is true and just. That's it. 
They celebrate God as true and just. And he is. And that we celebrate. For he has judged the great prostitute, the Babylon, right? Who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Here, this is a picture that God has not only been true and just in his judgments, but that he has now removed the corruption. He has removed with the cleansing fire of his judgment the corruption that plagued the world, that led people astray. This is what the saints are praising here, that God has removed that wicked force that that constantly sought to pull them away from their lover, to pull them away from Christ, to lure them into not living rightly, to not living faithfully, that they had to go and watch their loved ones, those that they they gave birth to, their children, their grandchildren, their next door neighbor, those that they watched absolutely get destroyed by the muck and mire of Babylon. And they celebrate that she's done for. They celebrate that she can't hurt anybody anymore. She's gone. That a parent never again has to watch their child be lured away to death. That a child never again has to watch and live with parents collapsed on couches from drugs. She'll be gone. That wicked force of corruption will be gone. And that is something that I so long for. Romans 8 talks a little bit about this. Romans 8, 18-25, Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to reveal to us. At the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is a picture Paul is talking about of how all of creation is groaning to have this corruptive force removed from it. That's what we see here in Revelation. This Babylonian process that is sought to bring corruption on the world and to destroy image bearers and to lure them away to death has now been destroyed herself. And they praise God for His vindication because not only do they remove the corruption, but He has avenged the blood of His saints. Remember back in chapter 6 in the fifth seal, the, the cry of the saints, How long, O Lord? And He says, For a little while. The little while is over. And he now comes to vindicate his people. Boy, it is a good thing to know. You don't have to go get vengeance on somebody. Pastor Fred talked about that in Hosea this morning, about bloodshed that produces bloodshed. Right? That picture of vengeance. Of you kill, you kill my sister, now I've got to go kill your brother and your uncle. 
Well, now you've got to kill my four cousins. Now we've got to kill this. It just multiplies. That's what, that's what it does. That's gang warfare. That's all that is. And no one wins. And what God has done here is He has freed us to live in love because we know vindication is sure. I don't got to get even. Because my getting even will always get me in the negative. You don't ever get even. I want you to know that. If you live a life of vengeance, you'll never get even. You'll just get negative. Only God gets even. Because only He is true and just. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. So we are free to love and forgive in light of the reality that vindication, vengeance belongs to the Lord. And He will be faithful and perfect. Deuteronomy 32, 43, Rejoice with Him, O heavens, bow down to Him, all gods, for He avenges the blood of His children, takes vengeance on His adversaries, He repays those who hate Him, and cleanses His people's land. And there's actually a picture of this in 2 Kings 9. We won't go there. But in 2 Kings 9, God raises up a young man named Jehu, who's going to be the king. And what Jehu's first, basically, commissioned task as the new king to do is to go kill Jezebel. Is to go rid her. And so Jehu is actually a type of Christ. It raises him up for the purpose of destroying this wicked woman that brings corruption to his people and pain and suffering to his people. And that's what Jesus will do. And then they praise God for the finality of his judgment. We see this with the 24 elders, or excuse me, right before that verse 3. Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. In other words, this doesn't end. There isn't like annihilationism where it's like, all right, we just zapped them away and it's gone. No, the smoke of her torment goes up forever and ever. It forever stands as a symbol of the justice of God. In other words, the smoke that rises up is forever a picture that glorifies God of His perfect justice. It no longer serves as a reflection of evil. It serves as a reflection of God's goodness. Isaiah 34, 8-10 For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. The streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch night and day. It shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever and ever from generation to generation. It shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever. And then we see in verse 4, all of heaven, the 24 elders, those, those angelic beings that represent the people of God, now join in with the full choir of the multitude, singing praise to the victory of God. Praise our God, all you who His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. There's a reason why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because the fear of the Lord will... I I want you to know this, right? That reverential, holy fear of God, not that like scared, but that filial, reverential, loving fear of God, that will be with you for all eternity. Like there at no point in all eternity will you ever get complacent with God. Even in your glorified state. It will only actually make you have a more righteous fear. You will never get to a place, you know, like I've been here a million years. I think I can go just... You know, be whatever with him. It's like, no. The being of God is so immense, so immaculate, so glorious, you will always have a reverential fear for him. 
Praise God, all those who do. All of heaven will join in. And then we see this beautiful picture of consummation with the wedding supper of the Lamb. Verse 6 through 10. Quickly, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. So we got the same group here. Hallelujah for the Lord, our God, the Lord Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. We'll stop there for now. So here we have the picture of the consummation day. The king has returned for his bride. The king has returned for his bride. And now all of the nations, all of the globe, all of the world belongs to him. He has been perfect in the conquest he left for. You you do realize that's why the king leaves. He leaves to conquest. He leaves to go and to gather. And that's the picture of what he left for. He left so the conquest could be completed. So that he would be victorious in gathering all of his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He has been victorious in doing so. So now he gets to come home and finish his betrothal. Consummate his bride. The war effort's over. He is one. Jesus said in John 14, In my Father's house there are many mansions. I will go and prepare a place for you so that when I come, you may come with me and be with me forever. That's the picture. That's what's happening here. He has gone and prepared a place. What does it mean? Right? It means that he has fully prepared through his faithful work, his death, his resurrection, his conquest. He has fully prepared his his bride, given her all that she needs, adorned her with his righteousness, prepared a place where, where there can be no more corruption, no more dragon that seeks to come against her, nothing that would pull her away, nothing that would harm her. He has prepared a perfect place for her, a new heavens and a new earth where she will dwell with him forever securely. That's what he has prepared for his people. And that's what he comes to take us to. That's what He will come. This is why, maybe you guys aren't Lord of the Rings nerds or Narnia nerds, but this picture is in all of those. In Lord of the Rings, it's the picture of the Black Gate battle where Sauron's army has been defeated, but there's still a few remaining. And they're ready to fight the last stand. And at first it seems as if the group's losing. And over the hill rides Aragorn, the king. And they bring destruction and they slay. They slay the enemy. And they can do so because the ring's now been destroyed. That's what Christ, Christ is the picture of both in that. He destroys the ring, he destroys the army. In Narnia, in the last battle, it's Aslan who rides in as it seems like it's all defeated and lays waste to the wicked forces of Narnia. Redeeming his people. 
and carrying them to eternity. This is the picture of the marriage here. It's a picture of consummation. And no marriage goes without having a feast. They just go hand in hand in the Bible. You would not go to an ancient Near East where there was a marriage and there wasn't a feast. It just goes hand in hand. And that's what the supper celebrates. The supper is celebrating the consummation. The bride has been completed and consummated. That's why any idea that there's like a millennium after this is foolish. Because God's fully consummated here in this picture. So it can't be chronological. It's consummated. The picture here is. And the reason why this is so important and this picture is so (coughs) heavily upon the heart of John is because this symbol has been throughout John's writings and Jesus' living and teaching. In John's Gospel, and he's the only one who gives us, where does Jesus perform his first miracle? A marriage feast. Where he turns... The water to wine. But do you remember what time of the party he does that? At the end. Who saves the best wine for the last? Jesus. And this is the picture. Throughout the interadvental age, the people of God, the bride of Christ, we've gotten a taste of the promises of the new covenant. We've tasted of the wine. We've embraced it. But he saves the best wine for the last. Because all of the promises of our betrothal now become a full reality. That down payment of the Spirit now becomes a full, utter lifestyle for eternity. Right now, brothers and sisters, you are the bride of Christ. And in your betrothal, you get to experience a taste of the new covenant wine every day of your life. He's writing the law in your heart. He's doing all of those things. But at the consummation, it will be perfectly written here. All this flesh that seeks to pull you away from God will be gone. You'll be glorified. The best wine will be last. It's a picture. That opening miracle in John's gospel, there's a reason John would put it there, I think. It's because John saw in it the reality. Oh, that's a picture of the entire age and what he will do at the end. Jesus' ministry for his people in John begins and ends with a wedding feast. It's fascinating. And the best wine is for last. He has returned for his bride, and it says that the bride has prepared herself. She's made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. This comes directly out of Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. And I'll, and I'll just. I'll, I, Isaiah 61. Just go there and read Isaiah 61. Through, uh, through 62 verse 5, you see this picture of the bridegroom coming to adorn his bride. And what's so fascinating about that is in, 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 in Isaiah 61 verses 10 and 11, 
It literally says that the Lord clothes her with white cloth. He clothes her with fine linen. He clothes her with jewels and fine linen. So what's fascinating here is we're told two things. One, the bride is called to make herself ready. But then look at what it says here in verse um, not eight. It was granted her to clothe herself. So which is it? Does she make herself ready through faithfulness? Or does, does Christ adorn her and make her faithful to His faithfulness? And the answer is yes. Yes, it's both. Christ is the one who cloaks you in white cloaks, who, who cloaks you with His righteousness, who ensures your status as His bride. And then, in your faithfulness to Him, you further adorn yourself through righteousness and faithfulness. It's both and. And you are literally empowered by God to make yourself ready, we're told here. This is why Paul says in Philippians 2, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who's at work in you. In other words, your faithfulness is working out the miracle of His faithfulness in you. So, is it you adorning yourself by making yourself ready, or is it Him adorning you? The answer is yes. There's no passivity here. You are being empowered to faithfulness. You're being empowered to fruitfulness because of the righteousness of Christ. In other words, when you get to heaven on that last day, your glorification will be both a gift and a reward. It'll be both a gift and a reward. That's why Jesus uses reward language. That's why there's a reason for the hall of faith. There's a reason why we look at, we have saints like Anna. There's a reason why you're called over and over again to be faithful unto death. Yes, God is the one working and willing and willing in you. God is the one who adorns you with the righteousness of Christ. God's the one who does it all. The Lamb does it all. But then He empowers you to go. And if you don't go, you're not in Him. If there's no faithfulness in you, it's because you haven't been covered by His faithfulness. That's literally what John says in 1 John 2. They went out from us because they were not of us. Had they been of us, they would have remained. So it's both. And, and so, we'll talk a little bit more of this in our closing, but justification by faith, if it leads to passivity, you don't know it. If, it, if you say, well, I'm justified on the basis of faith alone because it's a gift of God, amen, that's good. And if that means if you just sit on your coattails from that point forward and there's no desire for holiness, no desire for more of Christ, no desire to go be a missionary and live for the world, no desire to love your neighbor rightly, no desire to know him more deeply, to love more deeply, if none of that's there, you aren't justified by faith. That's James. You're not. James wasn't arguing against Paul. He's defending it. He's protecting that beautiful doctrine. 
So we are adorned and this is our righteous deeds. We are called to be faithful. Are we ready? Are we making ourselves ready for the Lamb? And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John sees this picture of the supper and the celebration of the saints. And the dude is so moved by the glories of it. He starts worshiping the angel. He starts worshiping the angel. It ain't like God, like John forgot who God was in that moment, right? John is just so moved by the revelation he's receiving from this angel, he can't help but worshiping. But the angel's like, whoa, I know you're excited about the message and rejoice and glorify over the message, but don't worship me, the messenger. Worship God. Now, that's really important. Real quickly, a real aside, the angel says very clear right there. Any worship of an angel is wicked. That's right now, right now, you get talked to your Jehovah's Witness friends, Jesus cannot be Michael the archangel. If he is, he, he's evil, he's wicked. You can't worship an angel. Right there. But Jesus does receive worship. And Jesus receives lots of worship. And we're told to worship him from these same angels. So what does that mean about Jesus? He's God. Right? So real quick, real fast apologetic method there. <coughs> worship God. The reason why I find that fascinating though is because if just the message about the glories of what eternity will be with Christ is worth causing John, an apostle, to literally worship an angel just for speaking about them, how glorious do you actually think they'll be? And if you think the glories of a marriage supper are exciting, how glorious do you think God's going to be? It literally made an apostle of God start to worship an angel. Apostle of the Lord worshiped an angel just because he was how amazed he was by the vision. If the vision's that glorious, how glorious do you think the reality's going to be? That's exciting. Here we see the marriage supper of the Lamb. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's pretty clear. All prophecy. The key to understanding and knowing all biblical prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. If you don't have testimony of Jesus, you won't understand any of it. And anyone right now who says, well, you can't read Ezekiel and Isaiah and Zechariah and read back into it the, the, the realities of Jesus. Tell that to the angel who literally says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He is the lens by which you must understand everything else. And without Him, you won't understand it. You won't. You have to understand it in light of Christ. He is the Spirit of prophecy. Why? Because the fullness of God is revealed in the person of Jesus. You come to the Father through Jesus. You receive the Spirit through Jesus. You know the fullness of the Godhead through the testimony of Jesus. 
And notice, he says, I am just a fellow servant with you and your brothers. The one point of unity in heaven will be the shared testimony of Jesus. That's what, that is the unifying force of all of heaven. Why are you here? My testimony in Jesus. That's, that's going to be the unity. That's the point of unity. Well, how did you sing? Well, we sang this way. Well, we didn't do that at all. How did you do this? How did you do that? I'm here because of Jesus. That's the unifying point of heaven. And notice, even the angels sing that too. The reason why this is so important is all of this beautiful picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb is one of the great reasons why we do the Lord's Supper. The very end of the Lord's Supper, what does Paul say? For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do so waiting or preparing yourself for the coming of the Lord. The Lord's Supper is so fascinating to me because the Lord had a supper with His disciples to start His suffering and the Lord will have a supper with His disciples to end all suffering. And the reason why that's so important is because remember what Jesus said? I won't drink from the cup again until I'm with you in glory. I won't drink from this cup again. He literally sealed the beginning of suffering with the supper and He ends it with the supper. And the reason why is I think that's so important is because when Christ inaugurated with Gethsemane, that not only began the suffering of Christ, it began the suffering of His body. And throughout the entire interadvental age, even though Christ is finished, He is to Telestai, He is raised, He is glorified, His church is identified in His suffering. Why do you think when He says to Paul, why do you persecute me? Christ identifies with the suffering of His people as we identify with the suffering of Christ. So one of the first things that we have to think about when we partake of the Lord's Supper, why we come with confession, why we do that is the picture that we identify with the suffering of Christ. That we have been called into this period of tribulation. That to identify with Christ means to face persecution. It means to face opposition. It's what gives me strength knowing that I am more like Christ through this. Identify with the suffering. Second reason though, why the marriage supper, why we look ahead, Paul says, is because not only do we presently identify with Christ's suffering, But by looking ahead, we presently identify with his victory. And so every time you partake of the Lord's Supper, you not only say that I am identifying with my suffering Savior. You're saying I identify with my victorious King. And each week you get to begin with a small taste of the victory that's yours in Christ. What started and inaugurated suffering will also be that which ends it. 
but the last wine will be better than the first. This is the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's really only one takeaway that I want to just leave with this. I had a couple, but I'll just leave with this one. This text makes very clear, especially when we look at that decimation of Babylon, that we are God's light. We are Christ's light and His voice in this world. Won't you live like it? Won't you live like it? You are an extension of God's mercy to this world. And if you think that's a point of pride, you're fooling yourself. Because you don't deserve to be at this wedding feast. That picture invited there, that's not a general invitation. The word there is eclectoy, right? It's where we get ecclesia, called, called out ones. Blessed are those who are called to the wedding supper. Literally, direct personal invitation. You didn't deserve to be there. You're highway and hedges that got called from the Lord to come in. You don't deserve to be there. Therefore, go and tell other people who don't deserve to be there. You are called to be His light and His voice to the world. Do people see that? Do people see the light of Christ in you? Do they hear the voice of Christ in you? Do they see the love of Christ in you? That's my great challenge every day. Is to look in the mirror and go, man, I want to look more like Christ. That's why James compares the Word of God to a mirror. Because you come to this mirror, and who's the reflection you're supposed to see? Jesus. But then you look at yourself and you go, ugh. I got some work to do. And that's okay. You're not going to be glorified in this life. But you faithfully pursue Him. Because here's the final point of the Lord's Supper. Just as it was, that's just as it will be in heaven. The, the, the single point of unity in the church is our shared testimony of Jesus. When we come to the Lord's Supper, it destroys all status. There's, nobody, there's no pastor in the Lord's Supper. There's no Sunday school teacher. No brand new convert. No longtime saint. There's just the person who shares the testimony of Jesus and who has been brought to the table by His grace. And that's our point of unity. That's why Paul reiterated it in a letter about division. Because it's about our shared testimony. But do you live that testimony? Do you preach that testimony to the world? My friends, I don't know whether the time is long or short. I have no idea. And I refuse to press upon the mind of God. But I will say this. I think it's a perfect connection with our message this morning. Whether you are 24 or 84, what would the Lord find you doing when He returns? If He should return tomorrow, what is it that He will find you doing?
Will you be a light or a bushel? Will you be a mouth or a muzzle? Live for Christ. Make ready yourself for your bridegroom. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the glorious encouragement of your word. Lord, so much could be said further. There are not enough words to describe the glories of what it will be. And I hope that even if there was just but a small fraction of what will be in both your perfect judgment and your perfect glorification of your saints, that that might fall upon our hearts and encourage us, God, in what seems to be a dark hour. Lord, we thank you that we get to identify with you both in your suffering, knowing that it works for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension, and also in your victory. Knowing that no matter what perceived losses may come in this life, we know that we already have victory in you. So we can love people better. We can live for you more greatly. We don't have to have vengeance. We don't have to do any of those things, but live for you to be your light and your voice to the world. So God, help us do that. Help us live for you. Help adorn your bride with righteous deeds that we might live faithfully for you wherever we are called to go. Lord, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. And we are so thankful and we look forward with utter expectation and longing that the last wine will be better than the first. And in that, we just all say together, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. In your name we pray. Amen.